Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is Carla. Where's your emergency? Um, I'm an off-duty officer. I thought it was in my apartment, and I shot a guy. I want you all to know that I am not a threat, that young black males are not inherently dangerous or criminal. Shots came around somewhere in the Shepherd area. Thanks for joining us. I'm Scott Sams. This is our new podcast, KRLD In-Depth. There have been several high-profile police shootings in North Texas over the past couple of years. We are taking an in-depth look at these shootings, the training involved with police officers, and the confusion and reaction from the community caught in the crossfire. The city of Dallas needs to clean up inside. He made the decision to stop firing before the first round was fired. You have doubled the amount of police involvement and engagement in the black community than you do in any other community. We, the jury, unanimously find the defendant, Amber Geiger, guilty of murder as charged in the indictment. In Dallas, Police Chief Renee Hall is holding oversight board meetings. In Plano, the brother of Botham Jean, honored for showing grace to the killer of his brother, former officer Amber Geiger. In Fort Worth, prosecutors are gathering evidence that will be presented to a grand jury in the case of Aaron Dean, accused of shooting Tatiana Jefferson in her own home. I'm joined today by KRLD courthouse reporter L.P. Phillips. You know, Scott, the list of these shootings in the last couple of years is pretty long. You mentioned Geiger and Dean. Yeah. There are others. Uh, for instance, former Garland police officer Patrick Tudor, he killed a man after a chase. And there was police officer from Mesquite, Derek Wiley. Uh, not once, but he had to be tried twice for wounding a man who was smoking pot. Otherwise, that guy was unarmed, minding his own business. Then there's Roy Oliver. He was found guilty of murdering an unarmed teenager, happened to be in a car, leaving a loud party. There are others across North Texas, in Fort Worth, in Lancaster, and there are marches, there are meetings. And you know what? There's the other side of this, too. Police officers who get shot. Yeah, it happened in Denton. There was a routine traffic stop, an officer shot in the head and the leg there. And who is ever going to forget about July 7, 2016? Five officers murdered by a man who was angry at what he saw as an injustice against the African-American community. It is a tough issue, but we need to talk about it. So let's start at the top. Dallas Police Chief Renee Hall. She has her hands full. She came in after 7-7, but before Amber Geiger, who walked into the wrong apartment and shot Botham Jean dead in September of 2018. We terminated her because she was arrested for... Um, I think what was the charge of manslaughter at the time. And when an officer is arrested for a serious felony, that is our protocol to terminate them. Um, But we do have to do an investigation in that process. So that's why she was terminated for uh, her being arrested at that time. It sent a message to the whole community, though, that it doesn't matter who you are, standards are standards, we're going to uphold them. Absolutely. That That is the message in this... Uh, police department, and it is for our community. We can't we can't hold our community accountable if we can't first hold ourselves accountable. 
So in this police department, in the Dallas Police Department, uh, we will continue to exercise excellence. We will operate with the highest level of integrity and with ethics. And anything outside of that will not be tolerated. We have to build trust and legitimacy with our community, and that's the only way that we can do it. Technology has changed since 21 years ago when you were a rookie cop. They didn't have cell phones everywhere. They didn't have doorbell cameras, some surveillance video. I remember they had VHS tapes back then. Mm -hmm. uh, but well, there are cameras now everywhere, including body cameras on the cops, dashboard cameras on the car. How has that changed the way officers are trained to approach a scene? You know, I, I think, I think you, you have to look at perspective because what I believe is, and what I know, this is beyond what I believe, we have the highest level of ethics and integrity. And I don't believe it matters whether a camera is on us or off of us. When we are operating in what we've signed up for, what we've taken an oath to do, the cameras should not matter. That last point, cameras are everywhere, yet they should not matter. Now, while they shouldn't matter, others think they do, and it came up with nearly every person we interviewed. You hear it in every, almost every story we do in the newsroom. Police are searching for surveillance video. Yeah, and dashboard cameras, and now police body cameras that you mentioned. Three of these shootings have happened in the last several years. Derek Wiley in Mesquite, you said that, Aaron Dean in Fort Worth, and then the Roy Oliver case in Ball Springs. All recorded on body cameras. Right, and, and just as they have the video on those cameras that can show police in a bad light, the officers, in general, like the body cameras. Mike Mata is the president of the Dallas Police Association. The Dallas Police Association was, in, was very much in favor of body cameras. We are still very much in favor of body cameras. Body cameras and video itself um, help officers tenfold more times than they hurt them. I think that's why you see the ACLU and some of those other uh, uh, and some activist groups who are now against uh, body cameras because they're, they're showing the full picture of what actually happens. If you look at the whole body camera, it helps to justify why the officer took the action that he took or the attempts that the officer made to try to de-escalate the situation. And so... Um, we are 100% behind the body camera, and, you know, I don't think you're ever going to get away from that because video surveillance is everywhere now. It is not just the law enforcement. It's every major building, just for their insurance purposes, make buildings have uh, surveillance cameras everywhere. And so I think it's a great thing. I think it just has to be taken into the context of that you're looking at a video that is not a three-dimensional video a lot of times, and you've got to take all the other assets of a crime, of an investigative uh, when you're investigating a crime in an officer-involved shooting and not just what the video shows. If Mata and his association like the transparency of body cameras, so does Terrence Hopkins from the Black Police Association of Greater Dallas. The body cameras, you see that as a good thing or a bad thing for cops? Good, 100%. It, it, it at least shows what happened. Right, shows exactly what happened because we all know about when people tell the story, there's my side, your side, and there's the truth. All right? I mean, I would like to think most officers tell the truth, but when we when we look at the, the body-worn camera and the evidence is in from internal affairs that it tends to, right, prove that the officer did exactly what the officer said he did as opposed to not. You know, now you have the small cases where things went differently, but at least you get a good, clear point of view, reference point from the officer as soon as he enters that scene, what he encountered, 
what the what the verbiage was and then what actions were taken. One officer told me there probably aren't more cop shootings than there used to be, but there are more cameras. Do you feel that that perhaps adds to the public perception of something that has always been the same level, or do you think maybe there are more cop shootings? No, I don't think there's more. I think we're social media-driven world now and with these things right here right see, I got to make sure when I talk to you I got to turn ringers off and all that so we all have these smartphones now and that's this is the game changer when it comes to something just happened fresh on the street the first thing somebody does pull up a cell phone and start recording 20 years ago you didn't have that so to me now is just the perception is there are a lot more shootings but truly there's not it's just that it's captured on Facebook 10 million times in 10 minutes. That didn't happen 20 years ago. Good point. Think back to the day that John F. Kennedy was shot right here in Dallas. Abraham Zapruder, remember him? Yeah. He had film, or did he? The fact is no one knew what he had until they got that film into a processing machine, then they got it to a projector, then they play it. Now, like Terrence Hopkins just said, it goes worldwide within minutes. I want to make another point here. There doesn't have to be a camera for police officers to face a trial. And back to the point that Chief Hall made. Amber Geiger was not wearing a body camera. There was limited cell phone video of her after the shooting, yet she was tried and she was convicted. LP, you covered that case. Didn't her training come into question? Yeah, it was a big point when she was cross-examined. Her training should have taught her, call for help instead of going in with a gun drawn. Instead, you decided to go in. Yes, I did go in. You had a police radio on you, didn't you? I did. Did it work? It did. You live two blocks away from police headquarters? Yes, sir. You know that when you call out as a, as a police officer, the number one thing for every other police officer is to come and help you if you say that you need help. Yes, sir. You know that the response time on this call was about two minutes and bodies were at the apartment. Yes, sir. So you could have taken a position of cover and concealment. You could have called for help on your radio, and you could have had the cavalry there in two minutes. I could have. You could have had SWAT mobilized. It, they could have. Yeah. So uh, has training changed in the last 10 years? In some ways, I don't think so. I, I mean, the basics of a cop being a cop are going to be the same, but there are things that have changed in big ways. A part of that, as we've heard, is because police now know they may be recorded, but mm-hmm. it's also because of changes in science. And one of the experts I remember testifying in the trial of Roy Oliver, that's the cop that shot the unarmed teen in Vault Springs, is a guy out of the Houston area. His name is Jay Coons. He has studied shootings. Has training lended itself more to police pulling their guns perhaps quicker than normal? Or is that just something that uh, we don't know why, but that's what's happening? No. uh, In fact, it's been exactly the opposite. Uh, Back when I came up in the the mid-70s, you were a police officer. It was your job to go in there, control the situation, you know, get control of that situation. You had a certain amount of authority to work with, and, and that's the way it was. Now, we're being taught concepts such as de-escalation. Now, don't get me wrong. Police officers have been de-escalating events ever since there's been police officers, and then that's over 200 years. Uh, Todak and James just did a study in uh, Police Quarterly that showed police officers are de-escalating events. Um, police officers are being taught not to lead with their authority, but to try to communicate with people, try to slow things down. 
try to communicate as one human being with another human being, and if it's possible, gain compliance that way, gain willing compliance, as opposed to you're complying solely because of my authority. One of the things that led me to call you in the first place was your testimony at the Roy Oliver trial. Uh, And I think this goes back to not only the training, but how we apply different sciences to the training. Tell me about this one-second rule that you came up with that uh, actually— uh, Roy Oliver was telling himself, don't shoot a second before he actually fired the shots. Uh, this isn't just particular to him. It's indicative of the entire population of everybody. Well, it, it is. And and it was a very sad case. Uh, the victim in that case, uh, from all intents and purposes, seemed like a, a, a very good young man uh, who had a future ahead of him. Um, we've all had this training, believe it or not, back when we went through driver's ed. We were talking about following distances. Now, back in my day, it used to be one car length for every 10 miles an hour. Now it's the two second rule. You should be no closer to the car you're following than two seconds, and that uh, irrespective of speed. It's reaction time. Uh, We're plugging that into police work. And what we're seeing is, is it takes anybody uh, a certain amount of time to observe something, to orient as to what that is that they're observing, to decide what they're going to do, and then act on that. So when a police officer is out on the street, they see something, they have to determine what that is, what that might be. They have to determine how they're going to react to that, and then they actually have to do that. Well, while they're doing that, that may be changing, and this is what happened in the Oliver case. Uh, From his point of view, the vehicle was uh, accelerating forward, and it was accelerating as a partner. He makes the decision to fire, which at that point in time was a correct decision because the vehicle was a viable threat to his partner. Now, as he's doing that, as he's bringing his weapon up, that vehicle is continuing to accelerate. So this is, he's coming up, he's adjusting, he's firing, he fires four shots. He literally made, he made the decision to fire. He went through that sequence. Then he made the decision to stop firing before the first round was fired. So his brain was telling him not to shoot a second before Before he pulled the trigger. Before he actually pulled the trigger. Okay. Now, one thing that's tough to talk about, I'm I'm going to head into it head on, and I think we need to. How does race play into the training? Roy Oliver shot an unarmed black man. Aaron Dean in Fort Worth accused of shooting a black woman. And then Amber Geiger shot an unarmed man, and he happened to be black. Right. The testimony of trial says she only saw a figure. Yeah. But still, there are people who say the number of African-Americans shot by white police officers, for whatever reason, is disproportionately higher. So do you think race factors in? It actually does in training, I guess, how it's approached. But let's start at the ground level. The Tatiana Jefferson Aaron Dean shooting. Black woman in her own home, white cop, happened in Fort Worth. Our Tarrant County expert, Andrew Greenstein sat down with community advocate Kiev Tatum. As a community leader, do you think in general that police treat black people differently than they treat white people? Well, yes. Uh, Men lie, women lie, but the numbers don't lie. You have 18% of the population roughly African American, but they make up over 55% of those who were shot by police. 55%. That's two times of whites, two times of Latinos. 55%. 18% 55%. 18% of the population, almost 50% of the arrest, almost 45% of tickets, you know, uh, of being stopped. So you have double the amount 
of police involvement and engagement in the black community than you do in any other community. The, the problem is the attitude that's developed in the black community, if it's not squashed and dealt with, it begins to roll over into other communities. Therefore, you see a shot shooting of a man in his own garage. You know, that's why you have a big fear in the Latino community who recently come on with in supporting the consent decree with us. Uh, we're pleased with LULAC for doing that. So um, we know that there's some bad going on in other communities, but not at the level of the black community. And that's what's causing the, um, uh, the, the trauma, uh, what's causing the toxic stress within the black community, which is creating this mental health tsunami, is because we're, normalize, we're normalizing this behavior on police officers in the black community. That, where else would you justify? If 10 people, if 10 dogs were shot by the police in Fort Worth, we have a mutiny in this town. What's going on? Why are you killing? Why are you shooting dogs? But 10 people were shot. Overwhelming majority of them African Americans under 30. With the latest being completely unjustified. And we're, we're dealing with this aftermath. There are different perspectives about the shootings and the aftermath. Let's run down those opinions. First, Dallas Police Chief Renee Hall on how race plays into policing. Is that something you have to worry about as a police chief? I think absolutely. Um, what we have to focus on is all of it. Um, you know, you have implicit bias in policing. You have cultural diversity um, that has to be addressed in, in policing. You have race that has to be addressed in policing. Um, what my job is as the leader of this organization is to make sure that we have those real conversations to find out um, where we are as a police department and where we are as a community. And that is recognizing that every single person in this police department and in this community has biases. What are they? Let's bring them to the forefront and let's deal with them. I'm not certain that um, a black person handles a, um, a suspect or a traffic stop different than a white individual because I'm not certain um, what their um, background is or what their training is. My goal in my seat is to make sure that we, as a police department, have a standard operating procedure in how we deal with our community. And then when we look at a situation, we look at the circumstances surrounding the traffic stop and not who's behind the wheel at the traffic stop. And so that is what our goal is, um, not just in the city of Dallas, but across this country. Terrence Hopkins of the Black Police Association of Greater Dallas, a slightly different take. Do white cops and black cops, Latino cops too, approach things the same way? You know, I think there's a tactical way we approach a lot of things, but then there is going to be a, a more of a relationship, excuse me, more of a, a, the approach we take with people of our own persuasion is going to be different because I'm more familiar with black guys. You're more familiar with white guys. So now here's the, either the unknown or what I'm not so familiar with. And that changes the whole dynamic. And finally, Mike Mata of the Dallas Police Association. Do white cops and black cops, I know we don't teach that, but do they approach things differently? No, I think, um, I think people are raised differently. And, I, um, you know, I actually taught multiculturalism in the academy, and I, I would tell the, the, the recruits that we had in this classroom, I know there's somebody in here that is a racist. 
because just by percentages and odds, like in any profession, whether it's doctors, lawyers, or whatever, there's always going to have that person. And there's nothing I'm going to say in eight hours that's going to going to pick you out because obviously if you've gotten to this point going through the psychological tests and the lie detector tests and all the things we do before we allow somebody to even come into the Dallas Police so Dallas Police uh, Police Department as a recruit you're good at doing what you're doing and that's lying hiding it the problem is or the problem is for them is that when you get into the public you can't hide it anymore because those are, there's those triggers that uh, will bring that racism out of you because you've never had to deal with it before and so you don't know how to hide it, then we will find you, it will show up, and we will fire you. Um, and uh, I think it's easier to find that type of person in the police profession, really, than any other profession because of the environment that they're placed into. You know, you have a person who's never met or never been around a lot of African Americans or a lot of Hispanics, and you put them in an area that is predominantly African American or Hispanic, and either they cultivate into that community and learn how to work together or they or those biases come out those triggers will happen and we will fire them so um in answering your questions i think it's uh i don't think there's uh i don't think that there's a community problem i think there's a a uh interaction problem that last comment, LP, that sounds a lot like the old beat cop used to walk around the neighborhood. One of the more interesting things that I found came out of nearly every interview, the cops want to get back to walking a beat. Now they're so stretched, they spend their time going from one call to the next. In the past, they walked the streets. You know, you got to know nearly everyone from the kids in the park to the grandma on the porch, Mike Mata. Your best friend in your, in your beat used to be the grandmothers. They know everything. Grandma on the porch knows everything. But she ain't going to tell you anything unless she trusts you. And you endure and you gain that trust because they see you every day helping the ones that need help and taking the jail, taking to jail the ones that need to go to jail. And we have gotten away from that. That's true community policing. And that's what we have done for so long. But then we've gotten away from it because now we're just chasing calls. Anybody can answer a 911 call and take a report. But it's about preventing those crimes and you do that by making your officers put down the cell phone get out of the squad car and engage a community but the community has to know them and they have to know that community and that used to be called beat responsibility and we don't do that anymore the thoughts of terrence hopkins back when i was a police officer i was more of a beat officer right i got to know folks on my beat instead of going call 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 i actually got to get out talk to walk around apartment complexes neighborhoods it was a it was an older school style of policing but what that did was it got me to know people right it got me used to people so if i'm one of those guys that walk into the community i don't know people i have fears or preconceived ideas that that stands in the way it's a barrier so uh, I don't think officers no longer have that personal feel with people and are able to relate to people. The grandma on the porch. Mm -hmm. You don't have that anymore. No, you don't. You don't. So that's, that's, that's part of it as well. So when you look at, when you look at all of that, you know, and, and I think you, you know, there, there's a racial component to it as well. So when, when you look at that, that just that whole bowl of all of that, man, it, it just means there's going to be problems. Problems Tatum Kiev thinks could be headed off in the same way. Boots on the ground. Relationships. You know, they're in a public service profession. Yes, we have times where they have to insert themselves 
in an authoritative manner. But by and large, 80% of their time is getting to know you folks. You can get more things resolved in the African-American community if you know Sister Johnson who lives on the corner. If you know Bebe them down there, they'll tell you who did it and when because they don't want crime in their neighborhood either. But you know what they need? They need officers they can trust. If they can't trust you and there's a phobia that if they tell you, you're going to go and tell them, you have no trust. If you have this authoritative, I'm in charge, do as I say mentality, then you're not building a relationship. That's just like with preachers. I mean, there's no way I can make it, you know, with this I'm the pastor mentality. No way. You have to, the book we just completed called They Smell Like Sheep. You have to get in there with them and become a part of them. You know, that was one of my biggest critiques of the police department is that 85, 90% of them live outside of Fort Worth. And finally, Chief Hall, who thinks the answer to days of the past could ironically lie in technology of today. We still operate like we did in the 1990s. Um, and it's going to take some of the changes that you'll see coming up after the uh, efficiency study that we just received. Um, right now, we have police officers doing what non-sworn people should be doing in our police department. Um, police departments all across this country have moved to non-sworn. Um, we're probably some of the last individuals to do that. So once we're able to um, get civilianization, um, get non-sworn people behind the desks, answering phones, uh, doing some of those things that, that they should be doing, and put our sworn bodies on the street, make sure that people are utilizing DOORS, our Dallas online reporting system. We are still responding to those priority four calls that everywhere else in the country, people are doing it online. Um, and so when we get to a point where our community is comfortable with utilizing this new technology, we have our civilianization in process, um, then we are able to be efficient and not responding to every single call, but just those priority calls. And that gives the officers time to be proactive, to go out and talk to the grandma on the porch, to do the business walks, to make sure that the businesses have what they need and see the officers. Um, so we're getting there. And of course, we're gonna be watching to see how this all plays out. It is an important topic for people here in North Texas. By the way, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast, KRLD In-Depth. For LP Phillips, I'm Scott Sams, News Radio 1080 KRLD. Thanks for being with us today. You know, you can also listen to us on the radio for breaking news, traffic, and weather. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 